I think they call that controlled chaos when, uh, <laughs> when we exit. It's kind of chaos, but I think everybody gets in the, in the right place, so it's fantastic. Thanks to all the, uh, the adults who are, are teaching this morning. If you would, take your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 14. We're going to continue to go through the book of Acts one chapter at a time. If you got one of the worship guides, one of the bulletins as you came in, you can turn that over to the back and there are a few notes that we're going to use kind of as a, as a framework to guide us through this passage this morning, but we're going to be in Acts chapter 14. We're really starting to move into Paul's missionary journeys when we get to Acts chapter 14. And I know last week I promised you a map, but I, I fell down on the job this week and, and didn't get a map for the PowerPoint. But likely in the back of your Bible, if you have a hard copy, you, you'll have some maps in the back there. And if you have your, your Bible in a smartphone or a tablet, there's something called Google. Uh, and you can uh, most likely find a, a, find a good map. There, there are some good resources out there to see uh, if you ever use Google Earth, you can put in a setting to watch Paul's missionary journeys take place through Google Earth and Google Maps and things like that. And so there are different resources out there on the internet. Obviously, don't believe everything you see on the, on the internet. It's not all going to be true. I hate to bust your bubble uh, with that, but it's not, it's not going to all be true. But there are some good resources. There are some good maps, some things like that, that you can check out here. One of the things we do with our kids as we're talking about what it means to be a missionary and what it means to be on mission for God is at night when I do Bible or when I do bedtime stories with the kids, what I will do is I've kind of turned bedtime stories into worldwide adventures to tell people about the good news of Jesus. And so what I'll say, and our kids always want to include their cousins on this, and I'm not a great storyteller, I'll just tell you right now. But thankfully the kids still kind of put up with it, and they're young enough I can get away with it at this point. But uh, I'll say something like, once upon a time, Austin, Bennett, Emery, Lily, and Claire, those are the cousins, went on a worldwide adventure to tell people about the good news of Jesus. And then I'll put together some sort of story where it takes them someplace in the world and they do something they either teach or they play sports or they take medicine or they do something like that so that they'll be able to go to a group of people who don't know about Jesus and use this to tell them about the good news of Jesus. And so what we're trying to do is work into their minds, work into their hearts that we go on these worldwide adventures because we want people to know about the good news of Jesus. Now, as your kids get older, there's going to be a certain point at which bedtime is not cool. All right. If you're telling bedtime stories to your junior in high school, probably probably not going to work uh, so well. But there are still ways that you can introduce them to what God is doing. One of the best ways you can do that is take them on a trip. Let them experience what it looks like for God's word, for God's gospel to go into places where it hasn't been heard before. Let's be a church that is constantly going, constantly sending, constantly thinking about what does it look like for the gospel to cross into new areas. That's one of the things we see going on here in Acts chapter 14. Let's start in verse 1, and we're going to read down through verse 8 to get started this morning. At Iconium, 
Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. Verse 4, the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the good news. In Lystra, there sat a man crippled in his feet who was lame from birth and had never walked. Okay, so at this point, they've reached Lystra. What's the significance of that? Uh, Well, to use a phrase we understand, they're not in Kansas anymore. Uh, they're, They're not in Jerusalem anymore. They have moved into an area that is far beyond the religious area. Maybe you remember the first time you went to New Orleans and thought, well, this is a different place. Uh, or, or maybe you remember the first time you went south of I-10 and thought, this is a different place. Uh, we live in a world, even though it's the south, we live in a world where we're beyond a Bible story culture. We're beyond a Christian culture. We live in the bottom counties in a world that is far different than what a Bible Belt situation would probably look like. And that's what happened to Paul and Barnabas. They have moved out of Kansas. They've moved out of Jerusalem. They are in a new area right here. Okay, watch what happens in Lystra. Verse 9. This man who was crippled from birth listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him saw that he had faith to be healed and called out, stand up on your feet. At that moment, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God, who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Guys, can you back up to verse 7, I mean 15? We're going to keep verse 15 on the screen because that's kind of be our focus. One of the things that we know from ancient literature is in this area around Lystra, there were legends, there were stories about the gods Zeus and Hermes coming down and visiting the people. And so the people in this area had grown up with stories. They had heard stories of what it might look like for the gods to come down and be on earth. And so when they see Paul and Barnabas show up and start to do these miracles, they think maybe the gods have come to us. Maybe they have finally come to our land like we heard when we were little kids. 
Also, it's interesting that the people who were hearing the book of Acts for the first time, they would have found this story familiar. Because back in Matthew chapter 9, we have the story of Jesus healing a crippled man. Very similar to this. If your Bible has the little references uh, down the middle or on the side and points you back to other texts, or if your smartphone has a little footnote that takes you to different places, it probably will take you back to Matthew chapter 9 where Jesus is doing a miracle like this. And it will also take you to Acts chapter 3. Because Peter does a miracle very similar to this, where a crippled man is able to stand up and begin walking. What's happening here is God is showing us that what happened in the ministry of Jesus and what happened in the ministry of Peter in Jerusalem is the same thing that is going to happen when the gospel moves outside of Jerusalem. In other words, this isn't a new message. This isn't a new God. The God who worked through Jesus is also the God who will work through his followers. And so we're seeing what it looks like for the gospel to spread outside of Jerusalem. And I want us to focus on verse 15. Look back at verse 15. It says, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. Okay, there's this phrase there, bringing you good news. That phrase in the original language is where we get our word evangelize. If you even say that word in the original Greek language, it sounds like evangelize. Now, when you hear evangelism, it's easy to say, oh God, don't make me do that. I I don't want anything to do with that. All the word evangelism means is tell good news, bring good news. We live in a world where there's a lot of bad news. I know that's not surprising to you, but we, we live in a world where there's a lot of bad news. When it says to do evangelism, to bring good news, that's exactly what we do. We speak good news into a world full of bad news. And it says here that they're bringing them good news. And you say, well, I would love to give people good news. What is the good news? And it tells you right here, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God. Here's what I would like you to do this morning. I would like the word worthless to terrify you this morning. Because the word worthless absolutely terrifies me. Have you ever done anything, been involved in something, and thought to yourself, is this really worth it? You go to work, and and you show up at work, and you're in the middle of the day, and you think to yourself, is this really worth it? Everything that I'm going through right now, everything that I'm putting my time and energy into, is it really worth it? You look around at your life. And people begin to ask the question, is it worth it? Is it worth everything I'm going through? Is it worth what I'm doing? Is it worth what I'm giving up? Is it worth it? Because there's nothing more terrifying than to be involved in something only to find out that it's worthless, that it's futile, that there's no foundation to it. This idea of worth here, the word worth has to do with the idea of weight, or value. If something is worthy, it means it holds value, it holds weight. There's something there that we determine this is worth giving my life to. Yesterday, we were in New Orleans running some errands, and we were at one of the stores, and this is kind of out of character to us, but we were at one of the toy stores, 
And in a sort of a unique situation, one of our children got a toy. Now, obvious parenting mistake there because we have three children and we purchased a chi- one child a toy. So what happens? The other two break down, totally break down. Now, there was good reason for this one child to get a toy and not the other two. There was a good reason, but the other two broke down. Well, the next story we went to was Target, and we're having a meltdown. We're having tears are coming down, you know, and, and we're in Target. And in Target, at the front, they have these dollar bin areas. Now, it might just be a dollar to you, but that dollar toy at that point held a lot of worth for me. Because if we purchased that dollar toy, it meant we were going to get out of that store. If we did not purchase a toy, they were going to kick us out of the store because we were, we were breaking down. Don't judge my parenting. This is a judgment-free zone. But as I'm looking at that bin, I'm thinking, kid, pick whatever you want. Just, just pick something. I'll pay a dollar and we'll get out of here. This is worth a lot to me. So they pick a toy, but Target prices some of the toys in the dollar bin at $3. At this point, I don't care. $300. Just get me out of the store. It was worth a lot to me. Maybe a dollar to you, maybe $3 to you. It held a lot of worth to me at that point. This is a decision we have to make with our life. Is this worth it? What I'm going to do with my life, what I'm going to give my life to Is it worth it? It's a dividing line in our world because we all have to decide what am I going to base my life on? And Paul tells them here, I want you to turn from these worthless things to the living God. Now there's an important question here. What made these other things worthless? Why were they worthless? If you walk up to somebody on the street and you tell them, hey, your life is worthless— uh, that's probably not going to be received really, really well. There, there has to be a reason that something is worthless. And the reason that Paul tells them that it's worthless is because they are giving their lives to a created thing, a thing of this world, rather than giving their lives to the one who created this world. Something to write down in your notes is Romans chapter 1. I would encourage you to go back and look at Romans chapter 1. As Paul in Romans is laying out the nature of sin, one of the main aspects there in Romans chapter 1 is that people are giving their lives to created things rather than to the Creator. Especially around verses 24 to 29. People are giving themselves to created things rather than to the Creator. The problem is, is if you give yourself to something of this world, it is ultimately going to fail you. You can look in this world and say, I'm going to try this, I'm going to try this. People go from one job to the next thinking it's going to make them happy. They go from one religion to the next thinking it will make them happy. They go from one relationship to the next thinking it's going to make them happy. And all of them prove to be worthless because they are not based on the Creator. We are not basing our lives on the one who is worthy. Revelations chapter 4. Revelation, not with an S at the end. Never let me do that. It's singular. Revelation chapter 4 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, 
because you have created all things. You receive power and honor and glory because by you all things were created. What makes God worthy of our lives and what makes everything else worthless is that he is the one who has given us life. There's a quote by C.S. Lewis in a book called The Weight of Glory. I want to read this quote to you. He says, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a vacation at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We live in a world where people are far too easily pleased. They give their lives to something. They sacrifice for something that is ultimately worthless. And so what we are doing along with Paul is saying, turn from those worthless things and turn to the living God the one who gave you life, and the one who will continue to give you life for all eternity. Don't turn from one religion to the next. Turn from the worthless things to the living God. What we find is when we begin to consider God worthy, then we will also consider his mission worth our whole lives. We will do whatever it takes to give our lives to his mission. There's a man named Saeed Abedini. Saeed Abedini is an Iranian pastor who has been in prison for about two years now in there in Iran. This last week, he wrote a birthday letter from prison to his little girl who was turning eight years old. And at her next birthday, my oldest daughter will be turning eight. And so I, I kind of connected a little bit. Listen to what he says. He says, my dearest Rebecca Grace, happy eighth birthday. You are growing so fast and becoming more beautiful every day. I praise God for his faithfulness to me every day as I watch from a distance through the prison walls and see pictures and hear stories of how you are growing both spiritually and physically. Oh, how I long to see you again. I know that you question why you have prayed so many times for my return, and yet I am not home yet. Now there is a big why in your mind, you're asking, why Jesus isn't answering your prayers and the prayers of all the people around the world for my release from prison? The answer to the why is the who. Who is in control? Lord Jesus Christ is in control. I desire for you, my daughter, to learn important lessons during these times, lessons that you carry now and for the rest of your life. The answer to the why is the who. The confusion of why has this all happened and why your prayers are not answered the way you want is resolved with understanding who is in control. God is in control of the whole world and everything that's happening in it is for his good purpose, for his glory, and will be worked out for our good. It doesn't matter if you're in prison and I ran or if you're just trying to make it through every day right here where we live. The question we have to answer is, what is worthy? 
who is worthy for us to give our lives to. And if we determine that the living God, the one who created the heavens and the earth, is worth giving our lives to, then we will give our lives to his mission. We will say, does this bring glory to God? Then I'm going to do it. Is this for the good of others? Then I'm going to do it. Does this bring me perfect joy? Then I'm going to give my life to it, my life to it. It might mean you go to Japan. It might mean you stay right where you are. But you will say, God is worthy. I'm going to turn from all these worthless things and I'm going to give my life completely to him. And when you do that, there's a second piece of the puzzle that comes along there. Look at what happens to Paul and Barnabas in verse 19. So they've committed themselves to this mission. And then in verse 19, it says some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. Now this is kind of frustrating. You would expect that Paul and Barnabas preached such a great sermon that everybody was going to turn to the Lord at this point. But they actually, the, 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 the opponents come and they win the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him in verse 20, he got up and went back into the city. Now, if somebody tries to kill you and then you recover, you would expect you would go someplace else, not back to the people who tried to kill you. But that's exactly what Paul does. He says, I'm giving my life to this. But then the next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. Verse 21, they preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. This is in 21. Then they returned to Lystra. So he goes back to this city again, and he goes to Iconium and Antioch. And then look at verse 22. He was strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. If we consider God worthy of our lives, if he is truly worthy and we give our lives to his mission, then guess what? We have to keep going even when it's difficult. Because if we say, yeah, God, you're worthy, and then things don't go well, and we say, oh, maybe not, I'll go try something else over here, we haven't truly worshiped the Lord. Because if we are truly considering him worthy, then no matter what comes in life, we will continue to follow after him. And what we will also do is we will help other people follow after him, even when times get tough. We have a word for this, and the word is discipleship. Discipleship means you help someone continue to follow the Lord even when it isn't easy. We've all had stories in our own lives. Maybe you've known people. They go off to a camp or a revival and they get really excited about God. And they say, I'm going to give myself to the Lord. I'm going to go to Japan. I'm going to follow Jesus every day. And they get really emotional about it. And they do that for a couple of weeks. Then what happens? The emotion wears off. And all those commitments that were made at camp and all those commitments that were made at the revival kind of fade into the background and they don't keep going. And the reason oftentimes that they don't keep going is they don't have someone coming alongside them and saying, you must continue to look to the Lord. You must continue to count him worthy. You have to keep going and I'm going to help you keep going. We need a long obedience in the same direction. Religion is not about this emotional game that we play on Sunday mornings and we try to get really excited and we go out and live our lives. It's about every day, step by step, 
what might look to some people like boring Christianity, but is really just faithfulness to the Lord. You get up, you go to work and say, I'm going to serve the Lord. You get up and you care for your family and say, I'm going to serve the Lord. You get up and you go to school and you say, I'm going to serve the Lord. You continue to be faithful no matter what is in front of you. And then we get to the end of this story and watch what happens. Verse 23. Yeah, verse 23. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. Then verse 27, on arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. This is the last point on your notes there, but we will celebrate, we must celebrate what's worthy. If God is worthy, and we've committed ourselves to his mission, and we say, I'm going to keep going no matter what happens, then we have to be people who celebrate things that really matter. If you're in business, or you're a parent, or you're a coach, or a school teacher, you know from experience that what gets celebrated gets repeated. And what gets celebrated is valued. If we celebrate something, people will see that and say, that must be important. That must be valuable. And so what that tells us as a church and as followers of Jesus is we need to consider very carefully what we celebrate. Because oftentimes in church, this is just the reality, we don't, we don't mean to it, but what do we celebrate in church? We celebrate numbers. More people came this week than came last week. We gave this much money this week and this much money last week. And so we celebrate these numbers. There's nothing wrong with numbers. We need data to be able to make decisions and see what the Lord's doing. Numbers aren't bad. The problem is when we celebrate numbers as being more important or a replacement for what God is doing in people's lives. I want to make a commitment to you that at First Baptist Church, Let's celebrate stories more than numbers. For the last year, there have been 45 people who have joined with our church as new members. That's a great number, 45 people. But behind those 45 people are 45 stories about how God is working in their lives. And it's much more important that we hear those stories than that we count up to big numbers. And it's much more important that you are generous with your life, that you are generous with your resources, than that we count up, we gave this much money. We're going to be a people who celebrate things that matter. We're going to be people who celebrate things that are worthy. As we come to the end of our time this morning, I want to ask you a question. What in your life are you counting as worthy? And the dangerous question there is, are there worthless things in your life that you're giving yourself to? Are there idols, things that you have set up as more important than God that dominate your life, that you're making sacrifices for, that you're giving your time to, and you say, these things don't bring glory to God. They're not good for others. They are worthless 
and I need to turn from those, and I need to get right with God, and I need to follow him with all of my life. We're going to sing the song here in a few minutes that we sang earlier in the service, asking the Lord to give us clean hands and a pure heart, and that we would not give ourselves to the idols, but that we would turn from those and give ourselves fully to the Lord. During that song, if you just need to come to the front and pray, this, is, this room is here for you. I, I will be here if you would like to pray with me. You may need to pray right where you are and say, God, some of the things I've done this last week were absolutely worthless. But I want to turn from those and I want to give myself fully to you. God, we thank you for your word.